what the research shows is positive events for them, for the positive events, we need to focus on them for 12 seconds or longer for them to go into our long-term memory. Hi, I'm Ben Capolo, and welcome to All Keyed Up. Thanks so much for listening. Today, I spoke with Dr. Barbara Fast. Barbara Fast serves on the piano faculty at the University of Oklahoma as Director of Piano Pedagogy and Piano Area Chair. Her lifelong interest in effective teaching eventually led Dr. Fast to researching and discussing the practical applications of educational research for teaching in the private lesson and group class. A culmination of her interest in effective learning and practicing and their integration with current and future technology resulted in the book, I Practice, Technology in the 21st Century Music Practice Room, published by Oxford University Press in 2018. An active clinician and educator, Dr. Fast has presented at Music Teachers National Conferences, International and National College Music Society Conferences, ISME International Conference, the Classical Music Festival Eisenstadt, Hawaii International Conference on Arts and Humanities, NCKP National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy, EPTA International Conference, and MTA State Conferences. Dr. Fast's articles and reviews have been published in Music Performance Research, American Music Teacher, The Piano Magazine, and The New School for Music Study Blog. In today's episode, we spoke about effective ways for teachers to motivate their students to practice and how to encourage productive practice habits. I hope you enjoy. Dr. Barbara Fast, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. It's a pleasure to be here, Ben. Thank you for the invitation. Today, I'd like to speak about practicing, which is an area that you've spoken and written about quite extensively. And I'd like to talk about this from two angles, which of course are related to each other. There's finding motivation to practice, and then there's coming up with effective practicing strategies. So first, I'd like to talk about motivation. I'm sure every piano teacher has had issues, at least with some students, with getting them motivated to practice. And more specifically, one comment that I used to get um, when I first started teaching, and I'm not going to say I never get it now, but sometimes, but specifically when I started was, my, my child loves the lessons, loves you, but they don't like to practice. When teachers hear comments like that, what do you think their response should be and what sort of adjustments might they consider making? You're right. That is a very common sort of thing to hear from parents and a thing to experience as a teacher. The first thing I think about as a teacher is, okay, this is a sign that I need to work with the student to find ways to help making practice easier or maybe more fun. And for starters, the first thing I think about is, does this student have trouble with what I call getting to it, with starting to practice? Uh, because once, and if they can start practice, then are they good to go? Now, with young students, that can be hard to actually ascertain. And sometimes I think a conversation with parents can be helpful. But these are some thoughts I have about the getting to it issue, which is an issue for many, 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 many uh, students. Uh, first of all, does a student like tracking things or checking the box off of things? Um, do you as a teacher like working that way yourself? If you find that you do and you know that your student has that same inclination, maybe finding really fun ways to implement that in the lesson would be helpful. And today, teachers can go in so many directions with this. Maybe a practice log, which is hard copy, or a student's texting you, or 
um, a log at the end of the week. Some of my teachers are using practice journals, and I'm actually surprised at that because that's kind of an older idea. But all I know is if the teacher is excited about doing it, they're going to share that idea in an exciting way with students to really help make that happen. Um, with older students, uh, uh, I'd like to suggest focusmate.com. I discovered this in January 2020, reading an article about someone working on their computer and being paired with someone who was practicing. And I thought, oh my gosh, I have to try this myself. And I have found that uh, I actually use it for things I don't want to get started on. And it might be grading, it might be schoolwork, it might be cooking or cleaning, whatever I don't want to get going on. And my older students, some of my university students say they have found that very, very helpful for them. I think it's probably a, uh, something for a little older student to use. And the other thing I hear teachers talking about, particularly these days, or students talking about, is actually having trouble staying focused when they're practicing. And I really think um, that's exacerbated to these days by um, our cell phone and social media, and the students confirm that, really. And that, I think, needs a just to talk about it honestly, because I think that is a serious issue. And then to have the conversation with the student, are you actually comfortable turning your phone down for 10 minutes, 20 minutes. Uh, my university students uh, will actually go into airplane mode and they know they have to, otherwise they just can't be focused. But I think to treat it seriously and just to have a, not to kind of brush it off if it's not a big deal, it is a big deal. And we have to work to find ways to, to deal with it with our students. It's very interesting about um, this idea that in order to get them motivated to come to the piano, maybe they need to check something off or, or have some sort of visual marker that they practice. It sort of reminds me of what some other teachers do that I've seen, like 30-day practice challenges. It's a similar idea. I have not heard about a practice journal. Is the idea with a practice journal that you would simply mark when you practice or actually a journal in the sense of like a diary where you would write down about how your practicing went? You, you named the two ways, the two easy ways to do a journal. You can go in many different directions with it. And I would again say um, teachers are going to implement whatever they are excited about. So if the if a teacher is excited about doing it a certain way, you know, writing down what they practiced or how they felt about practicing or doing a checkmark thing. Whatever the teacher is excited about, they're going to be able to share that in an excited way to students. And I've watched um, my um, graduate teaching of students. They will, I had a graduate teaching assi assistant implement STARS with students. And I was kind of like, you're kidding. These are college-age students. But she had such a manner of doing it. I allowed it, and she was very successful. Now, because I didn't get excited about it, I don't think I could have done it. But the teacher could because they were very excited, and that's key. Um, and this, the fun thing about teaching is to really pay attention to yourself as a teacher, what you get excited about, because that is what you're going to implement well, and you're going to implement very successfully with your students. And that's what makes you unique as a teacher. Yeah. This is something I've learned the hard way is even the youngest five-year-old student can sense fake excitement from the teacher and can distinguish that between when the teacher is truly excited. And I'm sure that would come up in the case you're describing with using stars and stickers if that's not your thing. Right. Um, so Absolutely. as far as your point about um, staying focused once you've already gotten past the initial motivation hurdle and you are setting down to practice sort of staying focused. One reason why students might f 
find that hard to kind of stay focused in practicing is that they might experience what you've discussed in your works as a negativity bias. Uh, at least in my studio, I found a lot that students can quickly become very self-deprecating when they practice or um, try to tackle passages if it doesn't work perfectly the first time and they can get frustrated or they could think to themselves, you know, why don't I sound as good as this person I had on YouTube? And if it's in a lesson, at least I as a teacher feel like I know how to deal with those situations and I can provide positive reinforcement and kind of work against that. But when they're sitting down alone to practice, they don't have the teacher there to kind of buffer against some of their negativity biases. So can you discuss how we can work with our students on developing a practice plan that sets them up for the experience to feel encouraging, even if the teacher is not there physically to actively prod in that direction? Yeah, we can go in many different directions uh, with uh, my response here. One of the first things I like to think about, and honestly, I have to remind myself to do this because if we're a good teacher, we want to fix things and we get really good at fixing things mm -hmm. and we want to get there very, very quickly. So one of the first things I have to really consciously think about, like when I want to write down their practice steps for them, rather than me writing it down, if I can think to say, um, Julie, uh, let's just review uh, what you should practice at home and get a conversation going with the student. And the student will say, oh, I need to da, 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 da. And then if they're young enough, maybe, or so young, maybe I have to write it down. If they're older, um, they can write it down. You know, they write down their practice steps. Uh, but we do that review in conversation. And that also lets me know. So I may think I really emphasize something and I want them to do, but what are they telling back to me that they are remembering to practice? Sometimes that's very surprising as well on it. But getting them to own that conversation about what they're going to practice during the week. And then um, if it's helpful, you know, whatever, you know, if you need to build in little reward systems during the week of they get themselves stars or they give them, they can go pet the dog after they played their scale two or three times, that sort of thing. Whatever you can build in as a teacher that makes the practicing sort of fun. The other thing that uh, I really have to think about in the lesson, but once I get myself in this mode, it is so much fun that once a student has performed, and I like to say, I like to start when a student walks into lesson to start the conversation with, you know, how did practice and go? What did you focus on this week? And it gets them owning, owning their own performance on it. But then once they've performed, so that I don't get into that, your dynamics were great, but let's fix the staccatos line three. Um, because what the research shows is positive events for them, for the positive events, we need to focus on them for 12 seconds or longer for them to go into our long-term memory. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Can you believe and, that? And that's not just music. That's in life. That's in life. Oh. That is in life. So it is why we all, all of us, will remember those, you know, kind of scary moments on stage when something didn't go well. We remember that because that goes into our long-term memory very quickly. But the positive events just kind of slide off of us very quickly. So my goal as a teacher is to try to allow the student to focus on their positive events. Because as you said, they don't. Right. <laughs> yeah. So after they perform, one of my first questions is, um, what went well? What did you like? Yeah. Or what was surprising to you that went well? Um, 
Another question might be, um, so I don't get to the fix it too fast, you know, relate the good to what needs to be uh, improved. So, you know, you want to work on the Alberti bass in the middle section, but maybe they had even eighth notes in line three. Oh, let's play those um, even eighth notes. Listen to those even eighth notes, and let's match those even eighth notes um, to that Alberti bass um, in, in the middle section. So relating the good to what you want to get improved on it. That idea of 12 seconds is so interesting. Um, why I guess my reaction to that is even I, when I practice, if something goes well, don't think about the fact that it went well for more than 12 seconds. Um, so this idea of the practice journal that you mentioned earlier might be a way to help with that. Because if a student physically writes down what went well, presumably that would take up to 12 seconds. And so that might make it the positive element of practicing stick in their long-term memory in the way that you're describing longer than if they didn't do that and they may quickly in their head think that went well, but it wouldn't be long enough of thinking about the positive to make it really have an impact. Yeah, Ben, you just stated that so clearly. You stated that so well. Um, absolutely. Uh, the student is thinking about it. They're writing it down. And that reminds me what you said um, some people are really into creating to-do lists rather than the to-do fix-it list. What went well? That's your to-do list. You know, oh. Yeah. Yeah. And you just make a list. You just make your to-do list. Another thing I use as a teacher, and it's one of my go-to questions, um, and I'm truly interested in this because I love to hear how students are practicing, is to say, you know, your dynamics were so much better this week. And Rather than go to, but let's fix the staccatos, mm -hmm. your dynamics were so much better this week. What did you do to get there? How did you practice? And, oh, we're in a conversation um, thinking about how they got to that good improvement. And I know that that's going to go over 12 seconds. Yeah. When I first started teaching, I would do a lot of, I think what you're saying not to do, of sort of very quickly saying a positive and then dwelling on the negatives. And what I noticed would happen in the lessons is when I would say something positive, like you did well on the dynamics, even the youngest students would go, but, because they already <laughs> anticipated that I was about to get into a tarot of um, negativity. So I think this thing you're describing of the ta-da list and really indulging in the positive rather than brushing it off. And then as you say, always in a teacher instinct, fixing things is much better for encouraging positivity and away from that negativity bias. Um, I'd like to turn now to talking about specific practice strategies. So forgetting now motivation about actually how to maximize our use of practice time. Um, I want to talk about how specific you recommend getting in terms of developing a practice plan with students. Um, and of course, I'm sure this depends on the student, but I've seen everything teachers do from simply just writing down what pieces to play and then that's it. And then I've seen um, kind of discussing general practice strategies in the lesson, but not applying it to individual pieces. And then there's, I think, what you were talking about earlier about having the students write it down. So when the students do write it down, how in-depth do you recommend going? Like, do you think they should say, play measure one to two this many times, clap rhythms of measure three. Like how specific should we be going here? No, and then that is such a great question. I would ask, partly I think you need to know your students well. Mm -hmm. And when I was teaching, you know, 30, 40 young students, I, I have to admit um, I did a lot of what you just suggested because I felt they didn't know how to practice. And I felt like teaching was teaching how to practice. 
Uh, so I would sometimes say, you know, practice this major three times because particularly young students don't really understand um, repetition. Nowadays, I like to involve the conversation on it so I can get them talking, you know, you know, Ben, tell me, how many times do you think you need to practice that a day? And maybe in that conversation, I can get around to, well, let's do it three times, you know. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and keep it student-centered before you say three times. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this, I believe so strongly, if I can get the student to tell me something, they will remember it and they will own it. They will own it far more than if I tell them. And if they say it, and then if they're old enough to write it down and you get two learning modes going on, they've said it back to me. They've written it down. Now, very young students, that will take too long. I've tried it with really young students and, you know, you don't want to spend... Yeah, the whole lesson would be writing down practice. practice. <laughs> exactly. So I, I quickly kind of moved beyond that. But getting them, it's so much fun to get the really young students involved in the conversation with it. It really, really is. And you can get kind of crazy with it. You know? <laughs> yeah. And I love using... It's so important to know what really young students are into. It doesn't matter what they're into, find out and then use, just build the storylines and build the, you know. Can you clarify what you mean when you say what they're into? I don't know. What, you know, are they into basketball? Are they into oh, okay. sport? Do they have a favorite teddy bear? I, what, do they have their dog, which they love? And then build that into, oh, let's just pretend, you know, build it into crazy storylines with that and they'll be with you. They will be with you because they are into it. And they love stories. They love crazy stuff. It's only as adults that we kind of get out of that mode. Right. But have fun with it. And I don't know, um, particularly with young students, just be as crazy creative as you want to, and they will have fun with it. Now, I want to talk about a little bit more specifics of different ways of practicing. Often when teachers recommend practice strategies to students, we encourage isolated work on specific components of the piece and not as much in the way of playing the whole piece the whole way through hands together performance tempo for, so the tapping the rhythms playing hands separate practicing the scale that the piece is in um when practicing in this way you've encouraged in the past in what you call interleaved practice over blocked practice can you elaborate a little bit on this distinction yeah that is one interleaved practice is one of my favorite topics um, partly because it's difficult to do, but the research shows that it is so effective. And very quickly, that the word interleaved is so awkward, and I always try to find a substitute, you know, maybe interspersed practice. And what it is, is, is cycling through your practice rather than practicing, let's say, scales for seven minutes in a block, and then you move to um, your Bach or whatever, mm -hmm. you would take those scales and practice maybe two minutes, but four different times within your hour of practice. Okay. So you're cycling through it. Now, two things. That is very, very difficult to do. It is absolutely not intuitive, and it's why we tend to not do it, because we want to keep practicing until we see improvement. Right. And I will tell students, I, I said, you know, I'll just be really upfront. I'll say, you probably won't like this. Grab your <laughs> cell phone and put a timer on it. And I and we talk about it. I say, you know, just try. Try three minutes, five, seven, nine. Just experiment with it. And off, students will come back to me and they all will give me different times and they'll say, oh, 
three minutes didn't work at all. But boy, I needed seven minutes and I could do seven minutes cycling through. Or they'll say, oh, seven minutes was too long. I needed just three minutes to cycle through things. And I say, go with it. Go with what works for you on it. Um, but that once I, I honestly, I, I have to admit, I don't start students cycling through everything in their lesson because I know it's very, very difficult. And I'll pick one element. And I think the easiest things to start with anything that's tedious, you know, technique, scales, and things that are difficult to fix, you know, that really hard measure in Clementi, whatever. Pick that one thing at first and cycle that through a practice session. And students will see improvement. I know I'm, I, it's guaranteed they're going to see faster improvement. And once I get them buying into it, then on their own, they will even choose to, to use it. I, I just feel like, oh, wow, I've, you know, made a great accomplishment when a student spontaneously will say to me, you know, I think I should interleave practices. And usually it's something that's kind of a niggling problem, a problem that kind of keeps reoccurring. That's the perfect thing to kind of intersperse in practice. Uh, Follow-up question to that. Is that also how you'd recommend structuring a lesson as well in the sense of rather than seven minutes of blocked work on scales, maybe two minutes of scales, then two minutes of this, then come back to scales in a lesson as well as in practicing? Ben, you, you have the perfect follow-up questions. Honestly, <laughs> in workshops, when I've given um, given this presentation, I've had teachers raise their hands and say, I am doing interleaved practice in my lessons. And I just, I, I tip my hat off to okay. them because they have discovered that is very hard to do. And but they've discovered how effective that is. And yes, teachers are doing that where they're coming back to it in the lesson. Um, I know because I know how effective it is as a teacher. If I can at least pick the one, you know, maybe the biggest problem and we've worked on it. If we can come back to it in a lesson again or you, you hit an impasse, you go, gosh, we're not getting anywhere. Move on and maybe come back to it. I think doing it that way would also help the students see the integration of all the different elements of what we encourage. So if, if all we do is seven minutes of scales and then never come back to it in the rest of the lesson, they might not totally make the connection between how the scales related to this. Or if you do five minutes of theory and then never return to the theory, again, they don't necessarily connect everything. Whereas if you're constantly going back and forth between all these different elements, I would think the student would understand how they're all integrated more. And, and you made the perfect follow-up comment, which I believe so strongly about teaching. Whatever we want the student to do at home, interleave practice, um, video record themselves, I first, as a teacher, have to really integrate that into the lesson before I can, particularly if it's something new or different or a little bit out of the norm, before I can really expect them to do that at home in practice. So absolutely, we've got to be doing it in the lesson, and then um, we can ask for it to be, you know, experimented with in practicing. Okay. Thankfully, um, there's a lot of neuroscience research that has shed light onto the relative efficacy of different practice methods. And you've addressed this topic in many workshops, um, and you've argued that, unfortunately, most people have a resistance to practicing in the ways that are most validated by science. I'm sure some of that relates to what we were already talking about as far as interleave practice versus um, block practice. But besides that, are there any other examples of practice strategies that are more closely compatible with what we know about the relationship between the brain and effective practicing? Oh, it's such a great question. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. 
Um, there are several other things, but one of the biggest ones I use all the time, and I've been using it now for years, is what I call hardest first practice. And the research is so interesting on this. I ran across it in the sports world uh, where ice skaters would say um, at all elite and um, local levels would say they're going to practice more difficult jumps and fewer easier jumps. But what they did when they researchers watched them practice, they did the opposite, including at the elite levels. They practiced a lot of easy jumps, very few difficult. And you go, really? At the elite level, we might expect that you know, from beginners, that what was even more surprising, they had to journal and write about what they remembered doing. And this was most shocking. The in all levels, including the elite, said they remembered doing a lot of difficult jumps. But in reality, they had done a lot of easy. They remembered it incorrectly. When I tell this to a psychologist friend of mine, they say, oh, we get it because um, we remember the difficult things. We forget what's easy. So we even misremember or miscalculate how much time we're actually spending on difficult things. And when I read that research, honestly, in the book, thank goodness I had a pencil and it was a book I, I wrote, they lied. I was so shocked. And my next, my next thought was, Barbara, have you practiced this way your entire life? Because I thought I'd been a good practicer. And I thought, did you actually practice more easy things than more difficult things? You know, what did you really do? And, and I started thinking about this with my students and I, I'm teaching group piano and I love teaching group piano. And I immediately took my repertoire and my, with my group piano students and I marked out, we found the most difficult measures. Where are they? Always in the middle or at the end in a coda. And I, you know, easy four measures research shows, um, we make mistakes and transitions. I included, you know, the jump, um, into that practice spot. I'll tell you, I instantly, it was like magic. The first assignment a student turned in was a hardest first assignment. The repertoire, I never heard repertoire after that, and I started hearing fabulous repertoire hmm. in exams. It was, it's magic. I've been doing it now for over 10 years, and, and all my graduate teaching assistants are doing it. We have the hardest first videos due on every repertoire piece, and it's magic. Because we don't want to do what's hard, and you get that done, you've addressed it, it makes practicing everything else just easier. I mean, the getting to it is so much easier after you've done the hard thing on it. Right. That completely makes sense to say that starting with the hardest and getting it kind of out of the way is helpful. I guess my follow-up would be, would that... Is there any way that that could make it harder? We were talking earlier in the interview about getting to practice and sort of going away from whatever non-piano activity you had to... Piano. So if the first thing you're going to practice is the hardest part, could there be a risk that the student would dread practicing even more if they know that the immediate next thing they're going to do is the hard part? You know, and I'm going to borrow an idea. I just did a workshop uh, for the St. Louis Music Teachers, and a teacher spoke about this, and um, she had the perfect answer. She does hardest first, but she calls it um, the most fun part. Um, that's probably a better way to frame it. <laughs> yeah, the most fun part, because that's always the most exciting it's always where the most is happening. So let's do the most fun part of the piece first. Um, so she framed it very, very differently. Yeah. And and then, um, well, that, that was exactly how she framed it. And she said, oh, now that we know the most fun part, let's see how we can apply it to, and then you get to what what is easier on it. Yeah. I like that way of framing yeah. it. There you go. 
Okay, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. Um, you've written a book with Jennifer Mishra called I Practice, and this book discusses ways to use technology to facilitate the practicing process. Of course, today we don't have the time to really go into this book in any real depth, but can you give our listeners a basic sense of what topics the book explores in case they might want to consider doing more research into the book and possibly reading it themselves? Uh, thank you, Ben. The book is really about practice strategies, and our goal in writing it, we, we kept saying we are writing it in blog style, meaning that it's meant to be a very, very easy read. It's meant to be uh, written both for teachers and students. Um, the first chapter is actually just about practicing and practicing techniques. There is a whole chapter on um, the ear and listening. Uh, the technology is all easy technology. It's all, you know, at the level of cell phone and computer technology, nothing uh, beyond that. And one thing I'm very proud of in the book, uh, we really worked hard to put research behind everything, the research in the book. So I'm very proud of the end notes. They're easy to read, but there is research behind everything uh, in the book. And that's one of the things I'm most proud of about the book is that there, it's a book on practicing, but there's research behind it. I'll make sure to link to that book in the show notes. Uh, do you have any other thoughts on, uh, before we go, on how we can work with our students on effective practicing? Um, we've covered a lot of things. I think what's important is to find ways to help students own their own practicing, own their own performance, and own it in a big way where they're seeing positives beyond and not just the things that always need to be improved because that's endless, but to really own what is going well and that they are doing well. And to really help students um, self-evaluate, but that the self-evaluation doesn't always go into, oh my gosh, every mistake that I did, yeah. but that it, that it embraces also what went well. And that's really difficult for everyone. It's difficult for everyone to do. Excellent. And can you give our listeners a sense of what you're up to now and where they can go if they'd like to learn more about you? Uh, I just did a session for the Music Teachers National Conference, MTNA. Um, that's a mm -hmm. virtual conference. Um, those sessions are available until June 1, and there are so many sessions, um, just so many. And they, it was such a good conference. Um, I'm speaking, I'm practicing again to Tennessee Music Teachers Association. It's virtual, so again, anyone can join that. And the National Conference on Keyboard Pedagogy, NCKP, has had a huge conference this summer, all virtual. So I'm a big believer in these um, teacher organizations as ways to connect with teachers. And there's just so much information out there, um, particularly um, with the pandemic. Uh, these conferences have gone virtual. So a lot available. Wow, that's great that you're doing all these features. You're clearly making a huge dent in the piano teaching world. And I really appreciate you coming on the podcast today. Thanks so much. Thank you, Ben. It's been a real pleasure. And thanks to all of you for tuning in to All Keyed Up. I'll see you next time. If you have any feedback about today's episode or have any suggestions about the podcast in general, feel free to reach out to me directly through the contact page at www.bencapolo.com.